Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. Joshua Brissett's eyes snapped open. Something had jolted him out of sleep, but he wasn't sure what. He lay still, listening, until he finally heard it again. A faint sound that may have been splashing water or crinkling paper. He nudged his wife, Irene, and put a hand on her shoulder when she stirred. He whispered, I heard something. I'll be right back. What? Irene asked as Joshua slid away from her. I heard a noise. It's probably just the girls, but you know. He opened a drawer and picked up a heavy flashlight he kept for emergencies. It was lighter than he remembered, lighter than he would have liked if he would have to use it to knock someone over the head, but he took it with him just the same. Joshua carefully opened the door. He stepped into the dark hallway and crept toward the twins' room. The door was closed, and there didn't appear to be any light coming through it. Perhaps they had not made the sound after all. From somewhere close, Joshua heard the carpet whisper. A brief set of rapid footsteps shuffled across the floor. Pointing the flashlight downward, he thumbed the switch. It stayed dark. He moved the switch up and down, but the flashlight would not turn on. He knocked it against his knee. Nothing. He unscrewed the top to check the batteries and... They were gone. Someone had taken the batteries out of his emergency flashlight, and it certainly had not been him. He gripped it like a club, which was its only function now. Leaving the hallway, Joshua stepped into the living room. The Brissette's extravagant Christmas tree still stood in front of the picture window, even though it was now January. Joshua had meant to put it away, but kept forgetting. In the dark, without its twinkling lights, the tree lurked like a monster's shadow. Joshua suddenly questioned why he was still sneaking around in the dark. Maybe because that's what he always saw people do in movies? He hit the light switch, but nothing happened. The switch's hollow click echoed through the dark living room. That's when Joshua switched from nervous to scared. Through a gap in the curtain, he could see the streetlight, so he knew there was not a power outage. 
but the little red light on the TV was off, and so was the digital clock on their stereo. Before Joshua could conjure any reason the power might go out in only their house, the Christmas tree rustled. The Brissettes had no pets besides a few saltwater fish in the dining room aquarium. Someone was there. Someone was hiding behind the tree, watching him. Joshua had always been one to question the decisions of movie characters in intense situations. Just call the cops, he would say, or get out of the house. But now that he found himself in such a situation, he could sympathize with those foolish characters. He had left his phone back in the bedroom, but could not leave whoever was in their living room alone to go get it. He could yell to Irene, but what would that trigger from the intruder? Speaking of triggers, was this person armed? With a gun? A knife? And getting out certainly wasn't an option, not with his wife and sleeping daughters just down the hall. Joshua finally determined a practical next step. He took a few steps backwards, never taking his eyes off of the tree, then slunk into the living room across the hall from the twins' room. He had momentarily forgotten his flashlight didn't work, and it turned out neither did the light switch in the laundry room. Joshua blindly felt along the wall for the fuse box. When he found it, he fingered each breaker, trying to determine which had been tripped, all the while listening intently and keeping a firm grip on his flashlight billy club. It was the master breaker, all the way at the bottom of the box, which he found flipped. Well, whoever's in here probably didn't count on me finding this so quickly, he told himself as he flipped the big switch back in place. A low, humming undertone replaced the perfect silence, filling audible space Joshua hadn't realized was empty, and the light above him flickered on. Then came a sharp crackling sound, an abrupt, violent buzz and one of the breakers popped right next to his ear. The cacophony turned Joshua from a careful tactician into a startled bear ready to tear someone apart in defense of its cubs. He charged out of the laundry room. He flipped the hallway light on, which spilled out towards the tree. The tree rustled again, and Joshua charged, flashlight raised above his head. Two steps away, he growled, Get out of my but stopped short at the sight of terrified twin faces staring up at him. Callie and Nora hadn't been in bed after all. They didn't say a word in their defense, only stared up at their father with anxious acceptance. "'What the hell are you two doing?' Joshua asked. "'God, you're lucky I didn't crack one of your skulls with this thing.' The girls did not reply. Joshua's vision broadened as the adrenaline wore off, he noticed a cord running from the tree, around the wall, into the dining room. He realized the cord was actually the light strand which had been wrapped around the Christmas tree. The girls had unraveled it and strung it across the floor for some reason. He repeated, What are you two doing? A lead weight in his belly made him move slowly as he followed the light strand. It ran underneath the dining room table and came up on the other side where it wrapped around one of the chairs before stretching across to the fish tank. The severed end of the strand was floating in the water next to all of the fish. Each and every one of the dozen or so fish was upside down, obviously quite dead. Callie's voice startled Joshua. From behind him, she asked, Do you think they're cooked, Daddy? Both girls giggled 
At 12 years old and only half the size they would someday become, the twins already terrified Joshua and Irene. Neither had hit puberty yet. Both were apparently delayed in that regard. What would the deviant pair be like once teenage hormones soured their brain chemistry? By 12, the two had written a varied rap sheet which ranged from childish lies to bullying to incidents such as with the fish tank. Killing the fish hadn't been the twins' first mass murder. When they had turned eight, their parents ordered them a massive ant farm for their birthday. After observing the ants almost continuously for nearly 24 hours, the girls put duct tape around the ant farm's corners and edges, filled it with water, and sealed the cap with duct tape as well. Their parents had found them an hour later, crouched side by side, cackling at the few ants who hadn't yet drowned. Joshua couldn't help but think it was a miracle the twins hadn't killed anything else in four years. Nothing else he, or Irene, knew about. The desperate parents decided to be proactive and take the girls to a therapist and get an outside opinion on the girls' mental health and behavior. Dr. Frank Farrow was the first family therapist available. Dr. Farrow, or Dr. Frank as he told everyone to call him, defied most stereotypes of a therapist. He was a six-foot-three bald man with bulging arms and a chest broad enough to be a shelf. One of his arms was sleeved in tattoos to the wrist, and a portion of another tattoo could be seen peeking out of his collar behind his salt-and-pepper beard. The front half of his office was set up for play. There was a half-sized bookshelf stocked with Calvin and Hobbes and Garfield comic books, board games, and coloring materials in the corner. A plush couch and matching armchair furnished the rear, more formal end of the office. Dr. Frank gestured for Joshua and Irene to sit on the couch as he got comfortable in his chair. The twins had each found a comic book to read, but Irene could tell they weren't actually paying attention to the books. She asked, Um, should we start this with them right here? Maybe this part should be done in private? Oh no, no secrets here. That's the number one rule, Dr. Frank said. Joshua leaned in and, almost whispering, asked, don't you think it could upset them or, you know, make them feel uncomfortable knowing we're concerned? Girls, Dr. Frank said, turning toward the girls, do you know why you're all here? Callie looked up from her book and said, Because we've been scaring mom and dad, Dr. Frank. Nora added, Yeah, we killed the fish and now they're super afraid. Joshua chuckled nervously. <laughs> we, uh, we have our concerns, but I wouldn't say we're afraid, um, we're not scared of... Dr. Frank raised a hand and said, See, they're intuitive. Kids are almost always aware of what's going on in situations like yours. I haven't met a kid with behavioral differences who wasn't somewhat aware that their behavior bothered their parents. By establishing this as a safe place to open up to one another, I'm hoping we can form habits that will bleed into your home life. We can't fix everything in this room, you know. We're only laying the groundwork. The parents nervously shared a few key anecdotes to illustrate the types of issues they were dealing with. First, there was the kindergarten graduation ceremony, after which the twins' teacher hosted a low-key party in her classroom. Half an hour into the party, long after everyone had downed a Dixie cup or two of fruit punch, one of the other parents gagged and screamed. Much of the ice had melted, revealing the bottom of the punch bowl, which was layered with tiny brown pellets pellets identical to those in the hamster cage a few feet away. 
Security camera footage showed the twins huddled by the cage at the beginning of the party before anyone had made a move toward the refreshment table. They could each be seen pausing briefly by the punch bowl before walking away, rubbing their palms on the tights beneath their skirts as they went. In the second grade, the girls invented a routine in which they would choose a victim, often one of the softer, more sensitive kids, and one of them would say sweet, kind things. The other would then translate the sentiment into something cruel. For example, Nora, who often played the sweet trickster, might say, I bet you have the best hearing in the whole class. And Callie would wait until the poor kid smiled, then say, You have bigger ears than anybody I've ever met. The issue came to light when one of the twins' classmates showed up to school with no eyebrows one day. He had shaved them off because, according to his father, the twins had told him, You look really mature for your age. Then, because your eyebrows are as bushy as an old grandpa's, Dr. Frank listened intently and made frequent notes on the notepad in his lap. He rarely interrupted the parents as they told these and similar stories, only pausing them when he needed clarification. Girls, he said, turning toward the twins after the background was complete. Why do you think you behave like you do? I don't know, Nora shrugged. Callie mimicked her. Do you understand that bullying other kids is hurtful? Dr. Frank asked. "Uh Uh-huh, Callie replied. So what makes you do it? We just want to, Nora said, matter-of-factly. Her voice had a cold, uncaring tone, all emotion having been trained out of it for years. Well, you're behaving perfectly right now. Do you feel like misbehaving? Callie looked over at him from her book and said, If you can't fix us, does that mean you're a failure? Callie, Joshua scolded. Dr. Frank waved him off and smiled warmly at Callie. He said, It's not my role to fix people. It's to teach them how to help themselves. I can teach, but if you won't use what I teach you, that failure's on you. Maybe you're just a bad teacher, Nora said, not looking up from her own book. Dr. Frank sensed their parents' reaction and preemptively gave them a stand-down glance. You enjoy getting under people's skin, don't you? He asked. It makes you feel strong, doesn't it? No, Callie replied. It makes other people feel weak, like you. Dr. Frank leaned back, smiled, and held his bulky arms out to either side. Joshua thought the therapist might have even flexed a little. Dr. Frank said, You'll have to try harder than that to convince me I'm weak. I'm confident in myself. Do you like who you are? We're the smartest kids in class, Callie answered. And the fastest. And the prettiest, Nora added. Dr. Frank paused to jot a quick note. Then he said, You both seem very confident, but I'm curious why you want to put others down. If you're the best, why make other people feel bad? Nora crawled over to Callie and whispered something in her ear. Callie nodded, and Nora crawled over to the small table by the bookshelf, slid a piece of paper toward herself, picked up a crayon, and started drawing. Callie said, It's fun to make people feel bad. It's fun to make them scared. Weren't you scared when we killed the fish, Daddy? Yeah, honey, I was. I thought somebody had gotten into the house, and I was scared they might hurt you, Joshua replied. That's not why you were scared, Nora said, still coloring. She had her back to them, but her parents could envision the evil grin on her face. Why do you think he was scared, Dr. Frank prodded. He was scared we were going to kill him, Callie answered. They're both scared of that. They know we could do it. 
Dr. Frank subtly raised an eyebrow at the parents, and Irene subtly nodded back. Nora turned around, waving her piece of paper. Dr. Frank looked Nora directly in the eye and asked, May I? She held his gaze with a mature curiosity, then nodded and released the paper. Dr. Frank sucked in a sharp breath after his first glance at the page. It depicted two houses, one with a stick woman and two stick children out front. On the other side of a tall fence stood the second house with a ridiculously fat, bald man crying in front of it. He was alone. Nora had left the woman and child vague, but to the fat man she gave just enough detail to leave no question who he represented. Dr. Frank's eyes returned to Nora's. Hers had never left him, and now they were no longer curious. They were threatening. They said, I know who you really are, Doctor. I know your worst fears. Frank had seen a similar look in other manipulative sociopathic children and adults, but he had never believed them as much as he believed this girl. The crude picture she had drawn in Cran was the first time he had seen his internal self externally portrayed, and it was a perfect likeness. Frank nodded respectfully to Nora, a nod which neither conceded the game to her nor tried to dominate their interaction. She returned to her sister on the other side of the room. After collecting himself, Dr. Frank said, I assume the girls still share a room? Um, yeah, they've always slept in the same room, Irene replied. Would it be possible to separate them at night? If you don't have a spare room, perhaps a pullout, or we have a spare room we could give one of them, Joshua said. Okay, great. Let's start there. Give them their own space to make their own. Having more privacy might help them develop more independent identities. Don't worry, they'll still be close, always. But when one acts out, the other may be less likely to follow automatically. That makes sense, said Irene. Joshua said, It's somewhere to start, which is all I was hoping for. Dr. Frank bid the family farewell, and they scheduled their next appointment on the way out. He had a 15-minute gap before his next appointment, so he broke out the emergency pack of cigarettes he kept tucked deep in a desk drawer. He smoked two behind the building before he could think about anything except Nora's drawing and how she had seen straight through his chiseled facade. Irene put a hand on Joshua's arm as they slowed before their driveway. He glanced her way and saw her watching Ken, their neighbor from down the street. He walked by the house every day with his toy poodle, always good for a friendly smile and a wave, which meant a lot because it required a lot from him. Ken had cerebral palsy and carried a cane. To wave at you, he had to prop the cane against his hip, balance on his strong leg, and make it fast. Ken hurried across their driveway as best he could and turned back for a farewell smile. Joshua glanced in the rear view and saw both twins eyeing Ken closely. It made him feel a little sick. Joshua and Irene heeded Dr. Frank's advice and spent the rest of the day arranging the spare room for Nora. That night, Irene tucked Callie in while Joshua tried to settle Nora in her new room. She stood next to the bed, facing the door, ignoring her father as he fluffed her pillows and plugged in her lamp. All right, you ready? Joshua asked. Nora ignored him. He went to her side and crouched at eye level with her. The twins were short for their age. Nora did not move nor acknowledge him in any way, 
Nora, it's bedtime. I know this is different, but I think it'll be good. And not just because the therapist said so. Nora slowly turned her head toward him, gave a disapproving scowl, and turned back to the door. Joshua repeated himself, Nora, it's time for bed. His words lingered for a second, then Nora finally turned away from the door and put herself in bed. Irene came out of Callie's room at almost exactly the same time Joshua left Nora's. They walked together to the living room, where Irene opened the wine cabinet and pulled out two glasses. The Merlot or the Cabernet? she asked. Cabernet, and plenty of it, Joshua answered. He sunk into his recliner and pushed two fingers deep into his left temple. When Irene handed him a half-full glass, he pinched the stem just below her fingers, his touching hers, and their eyes met. She smiled, but there was no happiness in it. She took her own glass to the love seat and nestled in with her legs folded beneath her. Nora tried to ignore me the whole time we were in there, Joshua reported. She stood right by the door with her back to me. So did Callie, Irene yelled in a whisper. Huh, maybe they... Joshua trailed off. Maybe they what? I don't know. Part of me wishes we hadn't taken them to therapy, if I'm being honest. It's like we admitted there's something wrong with them, and now I can't stop seeing every odd thing they do is creepy. Hey, your mom's a twin, right? Irene nodded. Did she ever act out with her sister? Did they have the kind of bond our girls have? She said they were closer than she could ever be with another human being, but that's all. It makes sense. I mean, who could possibly understand you better than someone with an identical brain? She has said once they grew up and started having their own lives, they became less similar. I guess they were shaped by their unique experiences later. That lines up with what Dr. Frank said about the bedrooms, Joshua pointed out. Irene nodded and sipped. What do we do if this doesn't work? Joshua asked. Irene stayed silent. Before, there had always been a faint whir from the fish tank water filter's motor in the background. Without it. The silence was crushing. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Brissettes saw Dr. Frank again two weeks later. They told him the girls were now separated into their own rooms at night, which had been going fine, but not resulting in any noticeable change. He assured them such changes would take time to become obvious. Well, it would be nice to have some obvious change now, Joshua replied. Irene leaned in, angling her body in front of her husband. Sorry, he's... we're getting a little worn down. It's just... After 12 years, to finally be so close to a cure? Not a cure, Dr. Frank interrupted. Unless there's some physical malady, your daughters don't need to be cured. They just need to be guided. What if there is a physical malady? asked Joshua. Well, an MRI would show something quickly enough, but with this behavior going back so far and affecting both girls equally, a somatic diagnosis seems pretty unlikely to me. When would you recommend an MRI? Irene asked. Dr. Frank narrowed his eyes and firmly stated, We're not there yet. 
They quietly observed the girls working on a jigsaw puzzle. They knew the girls were listening, but neither party acknowledged the other. Dr. Frank reeled the concerned parents back in. So, I want to hear about critical moments in their lives. You know, particularly memorable things, good or bad. A deeply imprinted happy memory can affect a child's development almost as much as a negative one. Nora bit the tip off a marker and swallowed it when she was one and a half, Joshua said. That was her first trip to the ER. I don't know if an experience like that can be bad for a kid that young. Hmm, no, probably not, answered Dr. Frank. Besides seriously traumatic events, children don't really develop long-term memory until about three. Three? Irene asked nervously. Joshua's hand slipped across the couch to nestle beside her thigh. Dr. Frank said, Yes, about three, give or take. Was that a significant age for them? Well, it's pretty close to when they started acting so... naughty. Irene shrugged at her own understatement. But every kid gets an attitude around that age, don't they? Dr. Frank chuckled. Yes, they do. But I sense something else has come to mind. The parents stared at him, like adolescents caught in their first misdemeanor. Irene stammered something muffled and unintelligible. Then Joshua took over. When the girls were three, just after their birthday, Nora, um, fell down a set of concrete stairs. All right... Dr. Frank's pen went straight to his notepad. She cracked her skull in two places and broke one wrist. It took months for everything to completely heal. Lots of trips to the hospital, lots of x-rays, that sort of thing. To this day, the only physical difference between the girls is the scarring on the back of Nora's head. Her hair covers it, though. Well, that's certainly interesting. We're only just beginning to understand the extent to which head trauma can affect the human brain. Now, has Callie ever had something like that happen? Never, said Irene. Huh. You know, maybe ordering an MRI for the girls wouldn't be a bad idea. I'd be fascinated to see if there are any differences in their brain structures. I know a neurologist in town that might help. I can't believe this is coming back to haunt us again, Irene muttered, sitting back. Joshua rubbed her hand in his. It's tempting to leave the past in the past, said Dr. Frank but the past can teach us a lot. Yeah, but the past is the kind of teacher that uses a ruler on your knuckles, Joshua grumbled. He and Irene both split in laughter. Dr. Frank grinned. They're coping, he told himself. Their defensiveness was actually quite useful to him. It told him how serious the incident with the stairs had been and how much it still affected them. It gave him a place to start. The twins typically got off the school bus around 4 p.m., so Joshua and Irene took turns leaving work early to be home with them. They had once hoped that when the girls turned 12, they would be able to spend the single hour or so home alone, but now it seemed irresponsible. Four days after the last therapy session, it was supposed to be Joshua's turn to go home early, but he received a text from Irene saying she had a meeting canceled and could go home instead. He replied, thanking her for the much-needed extra hour to work. At the house, Callie set down her mother's iPad after deleting the brief exchange with her father so that if Irene were to open the conversation, she wouldn't see that she had told him not to go home. Nora looked at Callie. Both grinned and hurried outside. Ken was stepping up the sidewalk with his toy poodle. Hey girls, beautiful day. Misty and I can't get enough of it. 
Ken cheered, stopping to prop up his cane so he could wave. The dog, Misty, pointed her stiff body toward the girls and growled faintly. Oh, that's enough, girl. It's just Callie and Nora, chastised Ken. How come you don't have a service dog? Callie asked. Ken grinned. He was used to taking these sorts of questions. Misty is my service dog, he answered. What can she even help with? Nora asked, giving the dog a faint look of disgust. Well, she's always there when I'm feeling lonely or sad, and she keeps me company. That's really pathetic, Callie said, glaring first at Misty, then slowly up at Ken. Ken looked back at her, shocked. He had heard neighbors complain about the mean-spirited twins before, but to actually experience their cruelty felt terribly surreal, like a bad dream. Don't you have friends for that? Nora asked. I have friends, sure, but they don't live with me, Ken said. He was allergic to being rude, but he was seriously considering just walking away. He would very quickly regret not doing so. Why don't you have a girlfriend that would live with you? asked Callie. Ken said, Well, that's not something I'm really interested in. I promise you girls, I'm happy. I get along just fine. How could you be happy with legs that don't work right? Nora asked, really leaning into the question. Yeah, and what's even going on with your arms? Callie piled on. Okay, girls, you're being very rude right now, and hey, put her down. Ken stumbled forward as Nora scooped Misty into her arms. She stepped back to the full length of Misty's leash, which was attached to Ken's belt with a carabiner. Ken grabbed the leash and tried to pull Misty back toward him, but Nora jerked away, almost causing Ken to fall. Oops, you might want to untie her. Me and Misty are going to go play for a while, Nora said emotionlessly. Yeah, I bet she wants a break from you. It must suck spending all day with a cripple, Callie spat. That's enough, girls, Ken scolded, sounding weak and scared. This has gone too far, and I will be telling your parents. Oh, sure, Nora said, stroking Misty's trembling head. You can tell them in an hour when they come home. Better follow me. Nora tugged at the leash again. Ken realized that, as badly as he wanted to rescue his poor, frightened dog, he needed to cut her loose. He could come back when Joshua and Irene were home. He didn't think the twins were evil enough to hurt Misty. He fumbled with the carabiner attached to his belt. Nora gave him a firm tug. Ken stumbled and would have fallen if Callie hadn't caught his bad arm. She yanked on it. Don't scream, she warned, giving his shoulder a twist. Give my dog back right now. No, she's going to watch us until mom and dad get home, Nora said. She nuzzled her cheek into Misty's back, then turned her back to Ken, which forced him to take three steps forward as the leash twisted around her body. As if Ken wasn't there at all, Nora began to walk to the backyard. Ken couldn't have screamed if he wanted to, which he did. Keeping up with Nora required every bit of his energy, and trying not to fall face first already had him panting. Callie scanned the neighborhood for any observing eyes before disappearing behind the house with Nora, Misty, and Ken. Why are you doing this? Ken asked. There was a tall fence around the backyard, so no neighbors would be able to see them. We're bored, Callie answered. Nora said, Mom and Dad have really been on our case lately. It makes it so hard to have any fun. 
They have us in therapy. Can you believe that? Can I? Ken quietly remarked. He instantly regretted this. Nora yanked so hard on the leash that he hit the ground face first before he had a chance to brace. He fell so fast, his cane landed on top of his head. The air left his chest. Callie straddled his back and pulled his head up by his hair. Remember not to scream, she growled in his ear. Ken screamed anyway as soon as he could draw a breath. Callie forced her hand underneath him and unlatched the leash. Nora grinned and stepped backward until the end of the leash was out of Ken's reach. Don't hurt my dog, please, Ken pled. Then do what we tell you, Nora replied. She unclasped the leash from Misty's collar. Callie got off of Ken's back and pulled his hair up until he got into the best crawling position he could manage. Twice he fell, mushing the side of his face into the lawn. When he eventually found his balance, Callie directed his attention to a dingy plastic playhouse long abandoned near the corner of the fence. Nora handed her Misty's leash, and Callie wrapped it around Ken's neck. Come on, doggy, she said sweetly. Let's take you home. During a text exchange, Joshua and Irene came to the horrible realization that no one was home with the twins. Irene got there first and discovered the obscene game her daughters had invented. Misty had been tied so close to a tree with one of the girls' jump ropes that she could barely move. But far worse, Ken had been leashed inside the playhouse while Callie and Irene made him eat from a bowl of soggy leaves they called doggy food. When he would stop for too long, they would prod him with golf clubs through the playhouse windows. Irene called 911 to get an ambulance for Ken, but of course, the police came with it. Joshua arrived just in time to see the girls taken away in the back of a cruiser. Since they had already been seeing Dr. Frank, he was assigned to the twins' case. By his recommendation, each girl had a brain MRI performed. He had been planning to recommend them already, but now that the parents' unspoken concern for their safety had been grossly validated, he thought the scans should happen immediately. The girls admitted they weren't sure how far they would have taken the game with Ken. Or maybe they just weren't willing to say it out loud. The neurologist, Dr. Carrie Largo, met with Dr. Frank and the parents to go over the MRI results as soon as they were ready. Now this is really very interesting, was her opening line. She handed two enhanced printouts to Dr. Frank, who furrowed his brow immediately. Then he laughed. Carrie, I think your printer copied the same one twice. Oh gosh, for a second I was trying to figure out how two brains could have identical tumors? Well, start trying, Frank, because we're all scratching our heads. No, that's... Check the timestamps. Dr. Frank held each page up almost to his nose and shook his head. Identical tumors? What does that mean? asked Joshua. Let's focus on what I can explain for now, said Dr. Largo, clearly uncomfortable admitting she couldn't answer the question directly. These tumors are quite large and putting pressure on the temporal lobe and pituitary gland, as well as the base of the frontal lobe. Now, pressure on any one of those could cause mood changes and hormonal imbalance, but all of them combined, 
I mean, I can't guarantee anything, but in my opinion, these tumors could very well be causing your daughter's behavioral issues. Uh, creating an imbalance which could influence your daughter's toward deviant behavior, Dr. Frank amended. It's tempting to take the onus off of the girls, I know, but saying these tumors are causing all of it really steals the twins' ability to own their actions and make corrections. Irene exploded. Tumors? Behavior? I don't care. My little girls almost killed a handicapped man in my own backyard. They're awful to live with, terrifying to everyone who knows them, and I just want it all to stop. Please, Irene, please, have a seat and remember we're all here to help, said Dr. Frank. Irene whimpered. Then help us. Dr. Largo said, Look, I'll cut straight to it. Whether they explain everything or not, we need to get these tumors out. They're too big to treat any other way, and without more time, I can't gauge whether they're still growing or not. We'll run some other tests, but in the meantime, I'd recommend scheduling the procedures right away. Everything happened faster than Joshua and Irene could keep track of. The girls were hospitalized immediately so the doctors could run their tests. In the end, the procedures Dr. Largo recommended had to be carried out. First, Nora then Callie went under for endoscopic brain surgery. While they were still sedated for recovery, doctors Largo and Frank called Joshua and Irene for an emergency conference. Do either of your families have a history of cancer or other types of tumorous growth? Dr. Largo asked. Joshua and Irene looked at one another and shook their heads. Okay, so I think it's safe to factor out hereditary or genetic factors. That narrows it down, but it raises a very interesting question. How they both grew identical tumors? Dr. Frank asked. Dr. Largo pointed her pen at him and nodded slightly. I know they're your kids and you probably hate to hear something like this, but this is an unprecedented anomaly. Doctor, you've studied lots of people's brains before, right? Irene asked. Dr. Largo cocked her head and replied, Quite a few, yes. Twins? Yours aren't the first. Irene paused, arranging her words carefully. Have you ever noticed something different about them? I mean, is there something about twins that people like us don't have? Nothing I've noticed, no. I assume you're getting at the magical connection some twins claim to have. Not magical, but... Dr. Largo looked at her shoes, then back up, saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it like that. Listen, I've heard every version of that theory but I just haven't seen the proof. I mean, anecdotes don't equal evidence. Well, you have now, Joshua mumbled behind his clasped hands. What was that? Dr. Largo asked. Joshua dropped his hands, sat back, and shrugged. I said, you have now. You've seen the proof. You're making a bit of a leap, Joshua, said Dr. Frank. Dr. Largo said, hold on, Frank. He's right, Joshua. It's a leap but not too big a leap to ignore. Maybe those matching tumors have me spooked, but I would be willing to study the girls' connection further at no cost to you. Wait, our girls? Irene asked. Joshua put a hand on her shoulder and pulled her closer. Her body dropped against him as her will dissolved. Joshua met Dr. Largo's eyes and gave her a shallow nod. Letter to the Court from Dr. Frank Farrow Your Honor, 
I'm recommending the cancellation of state involvement in matters regarding Callie Brissett and Nora Brissett, and the full responsibility of their care be transferred to their parents, Joshua Brissett and Irene Brissett. It is my professional opinion that the aforementioned children have been successfully treated, rehabilitated, and reintegrated into society. As you are aware, the Brissett twins both suffered brain tumors which dramatically affected their behavior and thought patterns. Both tumors have been removed, resulting in a nearly immediate change to the children's behavior and attitudes. Seeing as the victim, Kenneth Ellswick, has dropped all charges, I believe it best for the twins to return to private treatment. I assure you, I would not make this request if not for my firm belief that, one, it would be safe, and two, it would be best for the twins. Sincerely, Dr. Frank Farrow. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. If you want more creepy content, follow me on Instagram at The Warning Woods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into The Warning Woods. Thank you for listening. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.